Good morning. The scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38, and I will be reading from the Net Bible. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. To the person who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other as well. And from the person who takes away your coat, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you, and do not ask for your possessions back from the person who takes them away. Treat others in the same way that you would want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to be repaid, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners so that they may be repaid in full. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you, a good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap for the measure you use will be the measure you receive this is the word of the lord good morning i want to thank michael venter for preaching last week wasn't that a blessing i told you you're in for a treat I'm just excited. Yes, I know. Listen to that. To God be the glory, but yes. (laughs) We are so excited to have Michael and Mandy. And if you think Michael's something, you got to meet the wife and the kids. So uh, we're just honored to have the Venters and continue to be praying as a church family as we will vote on whether or not to hire Michael as the associate pastor. I should have given him this text this morning. (laughs) It's an easy one to read. It's a very difficult one to live. So shall we go to the Lord in prayer as we talk about this text? Father, we come to you this morning, and indeed we are grateful that the battle belongs to you. You are the good God who goes before us. Lord, you walk through the valleys you promised to do that you didn't promise to remove them but you did promise to walk through them you promised to be the shepherd and lord uh, ultimately victory has been already won at the tomb victory at the cross over sin and over death in the tomb and our savior your son reigns supreme we ask that you would guide us today as we look at this text it is a very difficult one Guide us, Lord, as we look to what you would have for us. Challenge our hearts. Give us ears to hear and hearts that obey. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week or the week before in Epic Times newspaper, it has the power of forgiveness 
on the title of one of the sections of the paper. It's interesting, forgiveness, there's been much research in this area. Carrie, in a study in 2013, links an unwillingness to forgive to behavior disorders and substance abuse. In 2004, Spolosky determined that unforgiveness and anger worsens diseases such as diabetes, hypertension, ulcers, and, immune, and, and lowers the immune system. That's not good for COVID. Leskin in 2002 found that if unforgiveness is sustained over long periods, it can damage the heart and the blood vessels. 2014, May and company determined that failure to forgive unconditionally has an influence on one's mortality. And I would doubt any of us sitting in this room would question that. We, we know that harboring bitterness, unwillingness to forgive, even anger, has a, a great effect on our health. And yet, why is it so hard to relinquish those thoughts and feelings? Being defamed, cheated, harmed, you can fill in the blanks, cuts to the very core of our very being and it consumes our soul like cancer, doesn't it? We come to the sermon that the Lord has given here in Luke, similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And we've talked about these are ethical standards for someone who has a transformed heart. That is that God has moved in as a, they are believers, they're followers of Jesus, and this is what is expected and you come to verse 27, and I think it's one of the most difficult texts in all of the New Testament, at least for me personally. And that is, it says, and I love how Jesus states this. So I say to you, those who are listening, and throughout Scripture, when Jesus states, you know, if you have ears, let you hear. In other words, this is an indication that you are obeying, that you're listening. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Interesting, many scholars who doubt much of what Jesus said and did in the New Testament, like the Jesus Seminar and Dominic Cross, and the list goes on of individuals who have tried to strip the New Testament of what they feel never really occurred. This section on loving your enemies, they omit. <laughs> Most convenient. The problem is for us is that no, 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 no. If we are going to be followers of Jesus, he's very clear, we are to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. There are four specifications on love that I wanna to highlight today and they're in your notes as well. The first of these is a call to love the unlovely. In verse 27, he says, love your enemies. Now, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament era, we, Leviticus is clear, you're to love your neighbor. And by the time we come to the first century in Judaism, they had redefined who is your neighbor. They excluded your enemy. In fact, in the Qumran, they went one step further, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they taught that one could hate their enemy. No wonder we're going to get later on to the text where Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan as an illustration of how we are to love those that we disdain, those who are an albatross in our life. And so Jesus states we are to love, and it's interesting, it's in present tense, which means this is an ongoing call to love our enemies, 
to care for them. And notice what he says in verse 28. To, the, first of all, the arch, overarching section is to love your enemies. And then he says in verse 28, bless those who curse you. How do we love? He's stating that we bless them. We evoke God's favor upon them. I mean, think about that for a minute, right? Uh, This is what's illustrated at Jesus of the cross. It's illustrated in Stephen when he's being stoned as he blessed those that persecute him. When a boss is yelling across the table or a so-called friend at school is making fun of you behind your back, it's not our natural response to bless, is it? (laughs) That's not where our mind goes. We might pray that the garbage truck runs over them a couple times. But the idea of blessing, uh, that's a whole foreign concept. And then Jesus states, not only do you bless, he says, you pray for them. Notice the text? He says, pray. Uh, again, it, it's, it, it's calling for this idea of, of you've been mistreated, you need to care for them. One Lucan scholar stated, it's a supernatural love. Because doing it requires that one reverses all natural instincts. It's, it is a love that can only come in light of dependence on God. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, as we see here in Luke, are designed for those who are followers of Jesus, where there's a transformation. What's the fruit of the Spirit? One of those is love. In fact, it's the one that starts with, of all the fruits, it's love. And Jesus proceeds in the next two verses, 29 and 30, how we're to love the unlovely. First of these, he says, turn the other cheek. You only have two of them. He said this action refers, what we're referring here to is a backhanded slap. It was often used in the first century to depict excommunication. You have been stripped of our body. Be away. The attack, it's personal. It's painful. It's often public, isn't it? And yet, love is readily available, never begrudging, and always vulnerable. And so, Jesus says, you're to love the unlovely. How do you do that? You turn the other cheek. He, he, often, he also mentions that you need to offer up one shirt. Here you only have one. You got two cheeks, but you only have one shirt. And Jesus instructs his disciples if that the outer garment is stolen, they should be willing to give their undergarment. I hope it's washed. Today, I think it's not necessarily the idea of, of, of a shirt, but it, the idea is, is money, giving what we have to those who ask. That's hard when they're the enemy, isn't it? A couple years ago, an individual called, and this individual who had purposely been a thorn in my side had made some unsavory comments and sought to undermine my ministry, contacted me and needed assistance. I showed Lori the email and I said, now that's chutzpah. Um, I don't know chutzpah, but that's chutzpah. I, really? You gotta be kidding. And after I went around the house a few times discussing it, my wife looked at me and she said, well, do you know what you need to do? And I knew immediately <laughs> that counselor had it come on and she was being very gracious. And the Holy Spirit took a two by four and my wife, with her graciousness, it was clear what I needed to do and so I contacted them. You know, I said, can I just send an email and saying, I'm sorry, I'm really busy. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but you know, there, there, there's so many other activities I need to be doing. No. 
It's, it's giving our shirt. It's turning the cheek. And he doesn't end there. Jesus states as well in verse 30, give to anyone who asks. In other words, give to the beggar. Give to the one who's demanding certain things. And the idea is, it's not just loaning money. It's much broader than that, isn't it? The idea is that there needs to be a genuine readiness to assist those that are in need. And finally, in this laundry list of how we're to love the unlovely, he says, do not demand a gift to be returned. In other words, it's not really a loan. You're not expecting any money back. There, there are no strings. <laughs> I was re- reminded of a friend of mine back in the college days, and uh, he was engaged, and they split up. It was unfortunate, and she brought back a sweatshirt that he had loaned to her and she said is there anything that I have of yours and well he had bought her a very nice figurine from overseas and gave it to her as a gift and, she's, and he said well yeah I'd like to have that figurine back <laughs> like no no you don't do that guys in this room if you, you're dating don't, don't do that um, she gave it back to him I, I would have given it back in one piece and I, I I'd have given it back to him in a box with a lot of pieces so he could use it as a rattler. So, <clears throat> do not demand a gift to be returned. You know, notice the similarities. This is not in your notes, but you want to write this down. It, it, the similarities of being, uh, these four, someone is opposing on your turf, aren't they? They're seeking their own benefit at the expense of yours. Secondly, there's no qualification on the who is. <laughs> it's very broad. Third, a personal sacrifice is required. Passivity or weakness is not entailed in the giving. There's no negotiations. Our response is to be given freely. There's no refund, and as stated, there is no loan. It's complete and it's final. And the other similarity among this list is all in the context of righteousness. What is expected of those who listen well to the things of the Lord? Now, there is some caution here in the midst of all of this. When viewing these commands from Jesus, Warren Wiersbe in his commentary makes a very profound statement. And listen, it's a little long, but hear what he states. We must not look at these admonitions as a series of rules to be obeyed. They describe an attitude of the heart that expresses itself positively when others are negative and generously when others are selfish, all to the glory of God. He then states, listen to what Wiersbe writes, it is an inner disposition, not a legal duty. We must have wisdom to know when to turn the other cheek and when to claim our rights. Even Christians must, uh, Christian love must exercise discernment. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is in Philippi. He's beaten to a pulp. He could have used the trump card that I'm a Roman citizen. He doesn't. He waits till the next morning and he pulls out and he appeals. He uses his legal rights. He doesn't turn the other cheek. He uses his legal rights and says, no, what you did is wrong and you are going to escort me out of this town giving me a box of bonbons and kissing my feet. He's very clear. 
D.A. Carson states, we must agree that absolutizing any text without due respect for the context and flow of the argument, as well as for other things Jesus states elsewhere, is bound to lead to distortion and misrepresentation of what Jesus means. In other words, these illustrations of how to love one's enemies do not account for righteous anger, a stance for and a consequential division because of orthodoxy, holding an individual responsible for sin, not dismissing the sin's consequence, and I would argue not for passivism. What these illustrations demonstrate, however, is an attitude of the heart and a willingness to love even those who are unlovely. Do you follow? You may not agree, but I think we need to be careful and take the whole canon and what's being in the context here. And think about this. We just sprang out of a section of Luke where the divide was made between those who are going to follow Jesus and the religious, the, the hoi polloi, the, 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 the Pharisees, right? <clears throat> those who don't turn the other cheek. Those who loan with an interest involved. Those who hold a grudge. And he's drawing this contrast of, of what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus versus the other. And so... We see here first, it's a call to love the unlovely. In verse 31, he gives us the second illustration or call of love, and that is to, to love as you wish to be loved. We see this in verse 31. Treat others in the same way as you would want them to treat you, commonly known as the golden rule, correct? It's, he then will illustrate in this section the negativities of how sinners respond versus how we should respond. In verse 32, he says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. Again, I can't help but think of the Pharisees standing there in their midst. Um, their power base was the, 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 the love that they received from the population, from the people. You know, that was all tied together. And, and Jesus says, this is what sinners do. You're to love those that can't even love you back. In verse 32, he's saying, you love only the unlovely. And the idea, of course, is that they're easy to love. Some people are nice to you. So, you know, of course you can love them. It's the grump in the other office that you struggle with, right? He says, loving, in verse 33, loving only those who can return the favor. Again, it's similar to the above, but it, these people, you know they will be nice back to you. It's like the two little kids playing in, you know, in the sandbox. And Johnny says to Sally, who he sees has some really nice toys, here, I want to give you mine knowing full well what he's saying is, I'm giving you mine, you're going to give me yours. <laughs> this is the idea. You expect that there's going to be something in return. And that also fits with verse 34. And if you find, if you lend to those from whom you hope to be repaid, what credit is that to you? This idea here is kind of like the, the mafia. You know, we, we help you out. And now your family. <laughs> So if we come knocking, we expect you to help us. We laugh. But it, it is, isn't it? It's so easy to fall into that rut of going, oh, I'll love because they're always so nice. Oh, I'll love them because, you know, <clears throat> they take me to nice coffee shops. 
I'll love them because, you know, down the road, I'm going to expect something from them. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. We are to call to love as you wish to be loved. This old idea of the golden rule, some of you who are at college may hear this, because there are those out there, like even George Bernard Shaw from Days Gone By, who says, do not do unto others as you should do unto you. He says, that, the tastes vary. This, this doesn't apply. Immanuel Kant famously criticized the golden rule for not being sensitive to the differences of the situation. Well, one, I would argue they totally missed what's going on here. Uh, number two, they don't have a very uh, healthy view of how one loves themselves. And three, it's rooted here in the righteousness of God. And that really leads us to the fourth, or the, excuse me, the third aspect of the love. And that's a call to love as God loves. And that's ultimately the basis of the golden rule. Notice this in verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend. So he repeats what he highlighted at the beginning of this section. Expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great and you will be called the sons of the Most High. So be kind to ungrateful and evil people. <laughs> be merciful just as your Father is merciful. A disciple who loves well is seeking to emulate God's behavior. It is a love that is no longer superintended by what people say, who they are, or how they should respond. Rather, this type of love is governed and controlled by God's character. True love, I would argue, reminds me, true love, uh, it starts with God, right? And it ends with God. It's not about us. I had an individual recently say, well, you know, I hope you never experience what we've experienced in ministry. And I want to say, yeah, um, yeah, we, I lost my job for standing for truth. Yeah, we, we went through some dark valleys. Trust me. And I would dare say most people, if they've been in ministry, have been hurt. But you know what? That all pales in comparison to what God's done for us. <laughs> no hurt can compare to what Christ endured for us who forgave us of our sins if we come and confess. The insults that are hurled, perhaps even incarceration, none of us have undergone what the Savior has endured as he took our sin and paid with his life what we have owed. You want to be called children of the Most High? Then act like it. <laughs> he has loved deeply to those such as us who are unlovely. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a great statement. What made him do it? Was it something lovely or uh, lovely or lovable in us that is in the world? Nothing whatsoever. Lloyd-Jones states, it was entirely and altogether in spite of us. What moved God was his own eternal heart of love, unmoved by anything outside itself. It generates its own movement and activity, an utterly disinterested love. Our God is good. He loved us well before we loved him or sought him. And the beauty is we can be like our father as children extending love and grace and mercy. By loving one another, the text is clear, we receive a great 
reward from the great benefactor, God himself. <laughs> it's a confirmation that we are his, right? That we belong to him. There's a lot of talk of building up one's equity. Equity in this life, I wrote, is by saving rather than spending. Eternal equity is gained by giving rather than hoarding. It's by giving rather than hoarding. And that's what the Father has done for us. And this call to love our enemies, the Lord states, you're to love as I've loved. I've already done it. I've set the model for you. So there's no question here in how that should be done. And finally, in this next section, which really could lead to another sermon, but I've tied it in today to the text. It's really calling to love without strings attached. What do I mean by that? Notice the text in verse 37. Do not judge. I see four exhortations that are going to spring out of these next few verses. Again, guiding us on how we are to truly love one another. We're not to judge. I love how, well, I don't love. This text is often misquoted by those outside the church. Well, even sometimes within the church. Uh, there is a time to confront sin. There is a time to deal with those that are wayward. But this verse is speaking of a, a self-righteous attitude. This shouldn't mark our lives. We're not to judge. And you notice he says, we're also not to condemn. We're called to be gracious, just as the Lord is great, gracious. thought a lot about this. The judging and the condemning, they're easy to do when you don't love your enemy aren't they? It's easy to fall right into that one. If, if I, I'm going to struggle giving graciously, if I'm going to hold grudges, if I, I, if I can't forgive, oh, it's very easy to judge and condemn and assume the worst, isn't it? Think of 1 Corinthians 13. Love conquers all. We hear that chapter often quoted at weddings. I hate to tell you, it's not for weddings. <laughs> it's for the church. In first Corinthians, the church in Corinth had a lot of issues. <laughs> there were a lot of divisions. And nestled in that letter is the call to love. Because they're judging. They're condemning. And he says, stop it. You're not to be doing this. There's no strings attached. And notice, he also then, and this goes into what we've just highlighted here with the forgiving. He says, and, and to forgive and you will be forgiven. Verse 37 our forgiveness is not dependent on a person asking for forgiveness. I've heard that said and I strongly disagree. Just think about the prayer the Lord taught his disciples. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. The prayer is stating that if you hold a grudge and you cannot forgive, God will not forgive you. It's red letters. Jesus stated it. I mean, think about that for a minute. And, and it, it's reiterated here in even verse 38. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use will be the measure you receive. It's either a promise or it's a curse. Depending on how you view the text. And how you live it out. And, and so we are to forgive. That's the in, the intangible and then there's the tangible and he says in verse 38 give and it will be given to you the standard in which individuals fulfill the above 
mass, uh, the above exhortations will be the very standard God applies. Well, application is very easy with this text, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, let me give you a few, though, that are in your notes. First of all, true love, true love requires that we die to self. Self-centeredness eclipses the golden rule with self-satisfaction, self-protection, and self-concern. Dying to self means one's eyes are on Jesus, not on ourselves and how we believe or construe what others are doing or saying about us. <laughs> Tragically, that which governs so much of our lives is others, isn't it? It's not Jesus, it's others. They are, we are governed by what they say to us or what they think about us. I mean, think about it this, this past week. In this past week, when you, when you lost your cool or said something you wish you hadn't said or felt discouraged, how much of those thoughts or actions were governed by other people? Hmm. Eyes focused on Jesus, not those around us. In fact, if our eyes are focused on Jesus, then we'll see those louses. <laughs> we'll see them through the lens of Jesus, right? To die to self, to live for Christ means what? That means, is there a person you need to start praying for daily? Do you ask God to have mercy and pity on them and not to punish them? Do you feel a great concern Trust me, I've been squirming all week with this text. <laughs> it's a hard one to preach. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones and his whole monograph on Sermon on the Mount, and he got to this section about loving your enemies, and he says, this is a text I deeply struggle with. I about fell out of my seat. Thankfully, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, Right? If you're sitting here, we must die to self in order to truly love because that is the model Christ has set for us. Secondly, we need to stop and perform a personal assessment test before critiquing someone else. Taking time to evaluate our attitudes towards others allows us to face the truth about ourselves. I love this quote by D.A. Carson. He said, all of us would be wiser if we would resolve never to put people down except on our prayer lists. <laughs> That's great. Matthew 5, counterpart to this text in Luke, states, pray for those who persecute you. That command calls for a deeply personal expression of the inner orientation of the heart, doesn't it? Know what scripture says about our actions and their consequences. Think about this for a minute. Fostering a refusal to forgive and forget, you have an issue with the Lord's prayer, and I would also argue with communion, according to 1 Corinthians. Harboring ill will and anger, well, you, if you hate others, according to 1 John, you also hate the Lord, and you are a murderer, and you are a liar. A critical spirit, the grace that was extended to you is also extended to them. Just remember the parable or the scene of the tax collector of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Gossip? James has a lot to say about that. 
the very tongue you seek to praise the Lord with, you will then malign and defraud those around you with your tongue. Be careful. <laughs> I think it's rather ironic that the old hymn, they all know we are Christians by our love, by, is in the minor key. <laughs> I love it. Oh, uh, you all know they were Christians. <laughs> we want to be known. We want to be known as people who are not disgruntled and who are not divisive. And I want to applaud this church because that is what I'm seeing. Keep it up. Keep it up. Careful. Again, I want to give a little caveat here in this text. This does not mean we cannot disagree. We, you know, that we can't critique or walk in caution. Sadly, today's culture depicts you as mean, divisive, or unlovely if you should challenge their thinking or, heaven forbid, disagree with them. Our society's mantra is be kind and just love. And thus we are faced with a culture that has redefined words, wears their emotions on their sleeves, levels at homonym attacks, accuses those who disagree as being racist, phobic, or worse yet, a fundamentalist and refuses to engage in a healthy debate or dialogue. It's not surprising the world's tactics are diametrically opposed to what God has set forth, isn't it? <laughs> Amy Carmichael, the quote in your notes, states, we are trusted to spread the spirit of love, tenderness and judgment, the habit of thinking the best of one another, unwillingness to believe evil, grief if we are forced to do so, eagerness to believe good, joy over one recovering from any slip or fall, unselfish gladness in another's joy, sorrow in another's sorrow, readiness to do anything to help entirely irrespective of self. All this and much more is included in that wonderful word, love. We need to die to self. Secondly, we need to perform a personal assessment of how we are critiquing others and first of our own lives. And then finally there in your notes, the third point is following in Jesus encompasses far more than lip service. Discipleship entails a transformation in all areas of life. If you claim to follow Jesus, you must love your enemy. John 17, in the upper room, Jesus knows he's about to be crucified. He'll be separated from the disciples. They're freaking out. And there's tension in the room. And he lays out this discourse. He prays for the disciples and he prays for future disciples. And what does he pray for? World peace? Nope. No more illness? COVID? Nope. No more masks? No. Protection from harm or revival? No. What does he pray for? That we would love one another. Why? So that the world might believe that the Father sent the Son. Second, the reputation of a holy God is at stake if we are divided as a church at Big C. And third, it has direct bearing on evangelism. The world's watching. The world is watching. I've seen guides, when we do the tours to Israel, I've seen guides come to know the Lord. Why? Because they're watching our groups and saying, I've never seen such love among a group of people before. Oh, let me explain that. <laughs> 
Discipleship calls for unity among God's people. Now again, another caution. This is not an enthusiastic pursuit for the lowest common theological denominator. Nor is it an apology for embracing the calling of God, nor is it a calling to blind allegiance. Certainly the church has had differences in opinions and callings. Just ask Paul and Barnabas, Luther and Zwingli, Owen and Baxter. What the church is stating that despite our differences in theology and practices, our talents and abilities, and even our callings and understanding of what God desires for our lives, we must walk in unity. It's agreeing to disagree for the sake of God's glory, isn't it? Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, makes a great statement. If only we all might begin to love like this, and every Christian in the world were loving in this way, if we did, I have no doubt, he states, revival would come. May we be known as a church who is loving. In fact, that is why we chose the motto or the mission for this church, loving God and loving others. It's simple, but it's so profound. It's what Christ prayed for, for his followers and, and for us in that upper room. May the, you love one another. And let me extend that as Jesus does here. May you also love those that aren't of the camp. Whatever that camp might be, we are to be loving Standing for truth, yes. Convict, or pointing out sin, yes. But all done in the banner of love. Die to self, number one. Do some personal assessment. And third, recognize that discipleship isn't just lip service. It calls for action. <laughs> Father, we come to you these are hard words. For some in the room, the wounds are so deep. For some, it's the sleepless nights of re rehearsing the words that were said maybe years before that are worse than any dagger. Perhaps it's a hellish nightmare they're living in even now. A troubled marriage, a wayward child, a workplace that is just toxic. School that, that is so hurtful as the bullies seem to prevail in the midst of the struggles. Lord, you know all about that. You walk this globe. And you are our sympathetic high priest who's been tempted in every way, who has been maligned, been mistreated, been defamed, been drugged through the mud, attacked by the religious leaders, and yet stood the course and loved even when they did not love. And you loved us even when we did not love you. Father, in the power of the Spirit, we, may we be known as people who love deeply and who understand what it means to die to self. In Jesus' name.